0: Thank you, Susan. It was funny, when Susan was talking, I remembered that when I was younger, even now, I've always uh, been intrigued with the idea of being a runner. I mean, I'll run maybe a mile and feel really good, but that's about all I can handle. Uh, When I was in junior high, I remember being in a cross-country race and doing really well and then running in the race and thinking, what am I doing this for? And I just stopped in the middle of the race. And my coach was like, what happened? And I I was like, I don't know. I just didn't want to do it anymore. (laughs) So now I see those marathons. And marathons are amazing, right? You have Masses of people lining up at the starting line. They've got their shorts on, their athletic shoes, their headbands, and they are ready to go. And those marathons go for 26.2 miles. Can you imagine that? 26.2 miles of running. I don't even like to drive that far. (laughs) Seriously. But, you know, I read about a marathon that recently occurred in Venice, Italy, You guys know what Venice is, right? That beautiful historical city with all the canals. And this was a big marathon. It was the Venice Marathon. And runners had traveled from all over the world to compete in this marathon. And again, it's 26.2 miles. And by the 16th mile, into the race. There was clearly a small group of men who were leading the pack there. And in these marathons, cars or motorcycles will go in front of the runners so that they can see where they're supposed to be going. And at the 16th mile in, the motorcycles that were leading the pack just took a sharp left turn and went off the course. Well, they were supposed to do that because there are certain areas in Venice where the roads just aren't suitable for vehicles. So the motorcycles did as they were supposed to. They took a left and they left the course. But I guess the runners didn't get the notification about that. So these runners that were in the front of the pack, they too took this bizarre left and just exited the course. And they kept following these motorcycles. They followed them so far that they lost the race and the race went to some local Italian man. And it was only his second marathon, (laughs) you know, and they might've been so disappointed, right? Thinking about uh, traveling there and all the training that they'd done, the hopes, the expectations, and how they lost because they followed the wrong lead. They followed the wrong guide. Well, what if that loss had eternal implications? What if by following that wrong guide, there was uh, something eternally associated with that? Jesus clearly tells us throughout the scriptures that if we follow anyone, if we follow anyone, even if we follow ourselves, if we follow anyone but him, the consequences will be devastating. And so we're going to spend the summer looking at Matthew 16, 24, where Jesus explains what it means to follow after him. And as we begin today, let's go to Matthew 16, and we'll start by going a little bit ahead of Matthew 16, 24, and looking at the verses that come before this so that we can get the context. We can see uh, where Jesus coming is coming from when he gives us this great call in Matthew 16, 24. We need to back up again. Jesus um, was ministering for about three years. Uh, Scholars say that his ministry time lasted for about three years. And by the time we get to Matthew 16, we're really near the end of his ministry. And at the end of his ministry, he said to his disciples, You know, who do people say that I am by this point? I mean, are they getting it? And his disciples said, Well, you know, some say that you're John the Baptist. Some would say Elijah, some Jeremiah, or some a prophet. And Jesus said, well, who do you say that I am? And Peter, Jesus' disciple Peter, responded, I know who you are. You are the Christ, which means the Messiah. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said, you are right, In Matthew 16, 18, he said, "'You are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church.'" Which was an interesting play on words because the name Peter in Greek is Petros, and the word for rock is Petra. So you are Petros, and on this Petra, this rock, I will build my church. It's like saying, you are Mark, and on this mark I will build my church. It's a play on words here. So Peter has this great declaration. He confesses who Jesus is. Jesus, you are the Christ, you're the Messiah, you are the son of the living God. And then we get to the next text, which leads into our passage at Matthew 16, 21 through 24. Let's read that together. Matthew 16, 21 through 24. It says, from that time, The time of this great confession, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him saying, far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. So Peter had just boldly and rightly declared that Jesus was the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And then the text transitions us right into verse 21, and it says, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples. That word there for show in the Greek means to show or to demonstrate Uh, There's a parallel text where the same account is recorded in the gospel of Mark. In Mark 8.31, it says, Jesus began to teach. Jesus wanted to make it crystal clear from that point on to his disciples what he was called to do. And he says there in verse 21 that he must. He must. There's things that he must do. He must go to Jerusalem it says that he must suffer. He must suffer at the hands of the religious leaders there. He must be killed and he must be raised. God had a very specific plan for Jesus, a very specific plan for Jesus's life. And you know, as followers of Christ, as disciples of Christ, as Christians, Jesus has a plan for our life too. He's got a specific plan for our life. And you know, if we are Christians, there's one plan that we're all called to. And that's our first point. The first point is plan to live like Jesus. Plan to live like Jesus. All Christians, all disciples of Christ, all followers of Christ are called to live like Jesus. And that's because we're Christians. I mean, it only makes sense, right? If you call yourself a follower of Jesus, then who are you following? Jesus, right? If you're a follower of Jesus, then you follow Jesus. If you call yourself a follower of Jesus and you're not following Jesus, then you're not a follower of Jesus. it's not that complicated, is it? We see this throughout the New Testament that Jesus is always calling his disciples his followers. Uh, For example, in John uh, 8.12, Jesus was on the Temple Mount, and he made this great declaration about himself before the nation of Israel. He said, I am the light of the world. And then he said, whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life if you follow Jesus, you won't walk in darkness. We are called to follow him. As we read through the gospels, we see this continually. Jesus uh, called his first disciples to follow him. He said to his first disciples who were fishermen, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And the gospels say that immediately they left their nets and they followed him. We see in the gospels that To follow him means to live like him. It means that we embrace his teachings and we live the way that he did. We see this in Luke chapter 9, verses 57 through 62. Luke chapter 9, verses 57 through 62 says, As they were going along the road, someone said to him, To Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of God has nowhere to lay his head. You sure you want to follow me? To another, he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Jesus was saying his followers will proclaim the same thing that he proclaimed, the kingdom of God. And yet another said, I will follow you. Jesus, I'll follow you. Lord, but first, let me say farewell to those who are in my home. And Jesus said, no one puts, who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Jesus saying, if you're gonna follow me, if you're gonna live like me, you can't have ties to this world the way the rest of the world does. It means that you're going to proclaim the kingdom. You're going to proclaim the good news and you're going to do this for a lifetime. You're not going to look back. You're not going to turn back or go back. To follow him in simplest form, again, means just to live like Jesus did. We see this spelled out in 1 John chapter 2, verses 5 and 6. 1 John 2, verses 5 and 6 says, By this we may know that we are in him. Great. How do I know that I'm in him? How do I know that I'm his follower? Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. We'll follow after Jesus. We'll live like Jesus. So we've got a plan to live like Jesus. As we Begin or journey on, or even if we're near the end of our Christian walk, we've got to remember our plan is to live like Jesus. Because if we're not aware of the fact that there is a plan, just like there was a plan for Jesus, there's a plan for us, we might begin to freak out when things don't go the way we want. You know, if you know there's a plan, then you can endure whatever it is that God is calling you to because there's a plan. And the plan is that you will live like Jesus. I'm not a huge fan of airplanes and riding on airplanes. I mean, I don't hate it and reject it or whatever, but it's not my favorite thing to do, especially those really long airplane flights. Uh, Maybe you're going to Europe or something and it's just hour after hour after hour after hour. Can you imagine getting on that plane and not knowing what the plan was? Uh, You get on and nobody tells you where you're going or how long it's gonna take and you have no idea when you're getting off the ride, right? Can you imagine going to Europe hour after hour after hour and not knowing how much longer it was gonna be? Thinking, when am I getting off this thing? If you didn't have a plan, you'd start to kind of freak out. But, you know, the airlines realize this, so they provide those little maps that go in the headset of the person in front of you so that you can see where your plane is and you can realize you still have 11 hours to go. (laughs) It's not time to freak out yet, right? But with a plan, you know what to expect. And when you know what to expect, you don't lose your mind. You know what you've signed up for. And for the Christian, we are plan, our plan is to live like Jesus. There was a plan for Jesus, and there's a plan for us. The plan for Jesus was that he must. He said, "I must go to Jerusalem, and I must suffer, and I must die." And as followers of Jesus, you know, our plan, it includes suffering too. We too will suffer and we too will die unless Jesus comes back for us. But the second point here is that we need to expect suffering. We need to expect suffering. And you might be thinking right now, this is why I did not want to come here this morning. (laughs) Compass Bible Church, right? Talking about suffering, expecting suffering, what the Bible says about suffering. Well, we need to expect suffering. And if we're feeling like, I don't want to expect suffering, I hate the idea of suffering, this doesn't feel right, it doesn't feel good, know that you are in good company. Because you know what? Peter didn't like that idea either. Remember, Peter had just come off this great victory. He said to Jesus, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said, yes, Peter, you are so right. Petros on this, Petra on this rock, I'm gonna build my church. And then Jesus says, listen, guys, this is what the plan is. I'm going to Jerusalem, I'm going to suffer, I'm going to die, and I'm gonna be raised from the dead. And Peter says, no way. Look at Matthew 16, and 23. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Can you imagine rebuking Jesus? (laughs) Saying, far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. But he turned to Peter. He turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. In the text there where it says, this shall never happen to you, it's a double negative in the Greek. It's like like saying this shall not not happen to you. Like Peter saying no way, no possible way. This shall not happen to you. Peter basically couldn't handle the teaching at this point. Uh, this was not the way that he had pictured the Christ in his mind. The Messiah, the Christ, came to save them immediately from governmental oppression, from the hardships, from the pains that they were enduring. And now the Messiah is saying, oh, guess what, guys? More suffering? In fact, I've come to suffer? Peter just said no possible way. And he went from this great confession To a rebuke of Jesus. And in this dramatic scene, we see Jesus physically turning around and saying, get behind me, Satan. Get behind me, Satan. That behind me is opiso mu. And we're going to see it come up again in the text. It's like, literally get out of my way. You are a hindrance to me. And the Greek word that's translated hindrance there is the word scandalon. Do you know what English word we get from scandalon? Scandal, right? You are a scandal to me. That same word in Matthew 18:7 is translated a temptation. You are a temptation to me. In 1 John 2.10, it's translated as you are a cause of stumbling for me. And in 1 Corinthians 1:12 it's translated you are a stumbling block to me. So think about this radical contrast in the text here. When Peter was thinking rightly, when his mind was on the things of God, he was a rock. But when his mind was on the things of man, when he was thinking wrongly, he was a rock of stumbling. He was a stumbling block. And we can see in six verses, Peter goes from a rock to a stumbling block because his mind was on the things of man, not on the things of God. And when we forget, when we forget that we need to expect suffering in our life and the lives of those we love, we can be a stumbling block too to ourself, and to the very people that we love. In six verses, remember, we went from rock to stumbling block. For us, it can be six months, six days, six hours, six minutes. We can go from right on tracking rock thinking to a stumbling block. All we're doing is shifting our thinking from the interests of God to the interests of man and it can happen so fast. We can get to where Peter was with an attitude that was inspired by the devil himself. Jesus taking us all the way back to Matthew chapter four. The same author, Matthew, 12 chapters earlier talked about Satan's temptation of Jesus. When Satan tempted Jesus, taking him into the wilderness. Jesus hadn't eaten for 40 days and 40 nights. He was hungry. And Satan said, if you're the son of God, why don't you make these uh, stones turn into bread? You have needs. You have physical needs. Why don't you feed yourself? And then he took him up to a very high place on the temple. And he said, hey, if you're the son of God, you might fall. Why don't you throw yourself down? Let's see if the angels really bear you up the way that scripture says when that didn't work, he said, okay, let me show you all the kingdoms of the world, everything you're ever going to want, anything that has quote unquote worth in this life, you can have it all now, no suffering, no cross. All you have to do is bow down and worship me. You know, and in the same way, the enemy appeals to us concerning these things, You have physical needs. You've gotta meet those physical needs. Do whatever it takes to meet those needs. You're up on a high place. You're gonna fall. Will God really save you? Will God rescue you? Why don't you protect yourself? Why don't you do whatever it takes to ensure your own personal peace? You can have it all now. Why do you have to go through the suffering? That's bizarre. Take the shortcut. Cash out. Don't go that route of suffering. There's an option over here that avoids suffering. And it's so simple, it's so easy. Can you imagine if Jesus had cashed out early? If Jesus had taken Satan's route? There'd be no cross. And you know what? There'd be no salvation for us. There'd be no good without the suffering. The suffering was necessary. You know, Satan wants us to cash out too. And for each of us, there's an area where he's tempting us to cash out early. I mean, you might even want to just jot that down and pray about it later in the margin of your notes. Where is it that he's tempting you to cash out early, to get out without the suffering, without the path that you know God has called you to, but it might hurt, it might be hard. No suffering, no character, no peace, no glory to God. And for some, it reveals that there was really no salvation. Matthew, same author in 13, 20 through 21, in chapter 13, 20 through 21, he's talking about the parable of the soils, the different people that receive the word of God. He's got four soils there. And in his second soil, he says that there are some who hear the word and immediately they receive it with joy, but they have no root in themselves and they endure for a while. When tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. When the suffering comes, they didn't expect the suffering When the tribulation, the persecution, the suffering comes, they say, I didn't sign up for this. And they fall away. They didn't lose their salvation, but it reveals that they were never genuinely saved. They should have been prepared for what was to come. They should have expected suffering. Then they could have made a more reasonable decision as to whether or not they truly wanted to follow Christ. 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 and 13 is another place in the New Testament that we are reminded that we are to expect suffering. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12 says, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though some strange thing were happening to you. This shouldn't feel weird, the suffering, like why is this happening to me? Because we're to expect it but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If we don't learn to expect suffering when we hear the call is to suffer, we might respond like Peter initially, getting in Jesus' way, saying, no way will this ever happen to you, trying to stand in the way, stand in the road, block God's will for Jesus' life. And it won't be for Jesus' life, but it could be for our life or for the lives of the people that we love. Are we trying to block suffering? Are we trying to get in God's route and prevent suffering in our life or the lives of the people that we love? Have we prayed for ourselves or for these people that we would grow in Christian character, that we would mature, that our lives would bring glory to God, that we would be saved, that they would be saved? then why are we freaking out when God calls them to suffer? Why do we try to block that suffering? I got to experience this on a micro level last week. I was with my uh, daughter, my youngest daughter, and she got some really hard news when I was with her. Um, it was just very difficult. In my mind, I thought, wow, uh, she's going to crumble. And uh, it was a rejection of sorts, something where you've been rejected. You've put yourself out there for a long period of time and you've just been flat out rejected. And I was thinking, you know, she's going to probably withdraw a little bit or, you know, maybe get a little edgy and, you know, I want to say the right words. I don't want to say too much and rub it in her face, but I don't want to say too little and act like I don't care. Praying God would give me wisdom. And all of a sudden she just had this brilliant attitude. It was so beautiful. I mean, she said, you know what? I've been praying about this, and I am confident that this is God's answer to me. And it was so encouraging for me in that moment. I just grabbed her and said, I am so proud of you. I so see Christ in you. And it was like she just was able to embrace God's call to her life at that moment. And I can tell you, at that second, there's nothing that the world could offer that would make up for seeing Christ formed, that maturity, that Christian maturity in your child. And you know what it takes? It takes suffering. Are we trying to block that in the lives of those we love? Are we expecting some pain-free life in this world that's not our home? In a world that's hostile to our God, hostile to our savior and hates our gospel, the narrowness of our gospel, are we expecting a pain-free life? If so, we're confused. Philippians 129 says what Christians have been granted with or graced with. Philippians 129 it says it's been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you get two things. You get to not only believe in him, but you get to suffer for his sake. We are to expect suffering. And because Peter didn't get this clearly, Jesus knew that all who were present needed further clarification and he made it very clear what discipleship looks like. And we go to Matthew 16, 24. Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me to anyone, to us. If we want to come after him, we need to deny ourselves, take up our cross and follow him. That come after me is literally if we want to come behind him. Behind him. Remember that opiso mu. Satan, get behind me, get out of my way. If you want to follow after him, get behind him, get out of his way, this is what you need to do. The first thing is you need to deny yourself. You need to deny yourself. And we might think, well, what does that mean really to deny yourself? Well, if we think about it, Peter actually denied someone shortly after this conversation. Do you remember who he denied? Jesus, right? He denied Jesus. Jesus told him that was gonna happen. In the same gospel, in Matthew chapter 26, verses 34 and 35, Jesus said to Peter, truly I tell you this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. Same Greek word there that's in our passage. It means to refuse to recognize, to refuse to acknowledge. So we are called to refuse to recognize ourselves, to refuse to acknowledge ourselves. And really ourselves here ties back to that wrong thinking that Peter had when he set his mind on the things of man rather than the things of God. So we're called to refuse to recognize our own sinful desires. We're called to refuse to recognize our sinful desires. And that's our third point. Refuse your sinful desires. Refuse sinful desires. Let's uh, jump over to Matthew 26 and see how passionately, How passionately Peter denied Jesus. In Matthew 26, verses 69 through 75, it says that Peter was outside in the courtyard and a servant girl came up to him and said, You also were with Jesus, the Galilean. But he denied it before them, saying, I don't know what you mean. And when he went out to the entrance, another servant girl saw him. And she said to the bystanders, Hey, this man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again, he denied it with an oath. I don't know the man. After a little while, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, Certainly you too are one of them, for your accent betrays you. Then he began to invoke a curse on himself and swear, I don't know the man. Immediately the rooster crowed and Peter remembered the saying of Jesus before the rooster crows you will deny me three times and he went out and wept bitterly. Can you imagine when it comes to our sinful desires when they come knocking on the door of our heart or on the door of our mind if we were to deny them as passionately as Peter denied Christ. If we were to say those sinful desires, I don't know the man. I don't know you. I don't want anything to do with you. I don't wanna be identified with you. I don't wanna be seen with you. I don't wanna be acknowledged with you. I reject you completely. I will not follow you. That's the same passion we have to refuse those sinful desires with. We need to make a choice. Are we going to follow Jesus or are we going to follow our sinful desires? We all begin our Christian journey, in a sense, by making that choice. Who are we going to follow? Who are we going to yield to? Who are we going to be the captives of? In Luke chapter 14, verses 31 through 33, Jesus is illustrating what it means to be his follower what it means to be a Christian, what it means to be a disciple. And he uses this interesting illustration of two kings that are going out to battle each other. He says two kings are going to battle each other in Luke 14, 31 through 33. And he says one king's got an army of 20,000 and the other king has an army of 10,000. Now think about it, who's going to win? the army with 20,000, right? And the army with 20,000 is God and his army, God and his might and his strength and his power. And the army with 10,000 is us and our will. And we get to the point where we realize if we go to war, guess who's gonna win? God. And so in Luke 14, 31, it says, will not this king sit down and deliberate whether he's able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000. We think I'm not gonna win. And if not, while the other is a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. You send people out, you say to the other army, I'm not going to win. I want peace. I surrender my life to you. I surrender. I quit. I give up. I'm going to lose. And that's the way, in a sense, we all begin our Christian walk we all get to that point of surrender. We realize we're not gonna win when we stand before God. He is a holy and perfect God who demands perfection and that is something that we are not. So our only hope is to turn to him and surrender, to say I place my faith in Christ and I turn from my sins. I turn from my sins, I'm gonna follow Jesus rather than following my sinful desires. And that's again, the way we all begin this thing, right? There's a point in time that we surrender our life to Christ. We surrender our life to God. When did that happen for you? When did you get to that point in your Christian experience where you said, I surrender my life to God. I'm no longer gonna follow my sinful desires, but I'm gonna follow Jesus. I'm going to put my faith in him and I'm turning from my sins. That was the point of your conversion. No matter where God had you on a journey up to that point, that was the point that you began your Christian life, that you were born again. And then we follow him after that. And as we follow him after that, we still battle with our sinful desires, Uh, Those sinful desires, because we're not yet free of this tent that we live in, we still battle sinful desires. And that's what the Bible says in Galatians 5, 16 and 17. It speaks of us as Christians who are following Jesus, battling these sinful desires, needing to refuse these sinful desires. It says in Galatians 5, 16 and 17, walk by the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. We're called to not gratify these sinful desires for the desires of the flesh are against the spirit and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. So we've got to make a choice. We've got to refuse the sinful desires as we walk on our journey of following Jesus. You might want to think of it like this. In your house, when you wake up in the morning and you wanna see what you really look like, where do you go? To the mirror, right? Well, in the Christian life, it's like we live in a house with two mirrors. One mirror is truth and the other mirror is, it's a lie. One mirror is right and the other mirror is wrong. One mirror is the mirror of our salvation, our new identity in Christ. We look into that mirror, that spiritual mirror in a sense, you know what we see? We see Jesus. If we're in Christ, if we've turned from our sins and put our faith in him, when we look in the mirror of our identity, that's who we see is Jesus. And you know what? He's altogether perfect. And when we look at him, we're perfect. Because he's taken our sin and he's given us our his righteousness. And that's our identity, that's who we are. But then there's that other mirror that's still hanging on the walls that mirror of our old sinful desires and it's wrong and we shouldn't be looking into it. It's the old nature and it desires to please itself and those desires are broken and they're never satisfied. But there's something in us that will want to pull ourselves back to that mirror because there's a temporary elation that takes place when we look into that mirror and we get what we want. When we look into that mirror and we say, mirror, mirror on the wall, (laughs) who's the fairest of them all? And when the mirror says, you, my queen, are fairest of them all, there's that temporary elation that takes place there. But you know what? In no time, as we keep running back to that mirror because we want to get that feeling again, checking it constantly over and over and over again, the mirror says to us eventually, you, my queen, are fair. It's true. But Snow White, she's a thousand times more fair than you. And we go into rage, right? Because that's just not right, mirror. You know, I'm the best. I'm the one. I've got these desires. I want my desires satisfied. And we're looking into a mirror that can never satisfy the desires that we want if we're turning to our sinful nature. We've got to go to Christ. We've got to go to our new identity. We've got to go to where we belong. And you know, that mirror, mirror is an old story, I mean, that was written in 1812, the story of Snow White. But what a picture, right, of the heart, even the heart of a woman looking into that mirror. And I think, you know, there's so many ways that we check that mirror constantly, looking to see, you know, in that mirror of our sinful desires, what we look like, how we measure up. I mean, just think of all the young girls out there just scrolling and scrolling and scrolling through Instagram all day, every day, all day, every day, looking at that mirror. How many likes do I have? How many likes does she have? It's so discouraging just seeing people entrapped in different tools that they use to satisfy these sinful desires. Looking at these sinful desires, looking for affirmation in the wrong places, like my appearance, am I too fat? Do I have too many wrinkles? Do my clothes look good? And the mirror's gonna eventually say no. Snow White, she's way better looking than you are, right? And we're frustrated and broken and livid or our finances. You know, looking into the mirror, do I have enough? Do I have enough money? Can I buy enough? Can I go to enough places? Can I travel where I want to go? Can I see what I want to see? Can I experience what I want to experience? And the mirror says, nope, look what she's doing, and it's far better than what you're doing. And we become broken and sad and angry and hateful, and our hearts become bitter. Even the mirror of relationships, when we're using our relationships to satisfy our sinful desires. Uh, My husband, is he serving me and loving me the way he should? My kids, are they making me look good? My friends, was I included in that? Why wasn't I invited to that? That doesn't make sense. Why am I not at that lunch or at that party? And as we keep looking for people to satisfy us and to meet our needs, we become disappointed because guess what? It's working out better for Snow White. And then even with our talents, our skills, our abilities, we think, well, I'm gonna be the best at this, I'm gonna be the best at that, I'm gonna be so good at this. I've got this talent, this skill, this ability, I'm gonna do it and everyone's gonna know how great I am and guess what, Snow White does it better. And we think, ugh, I hate that Snow White. I can't stand her, just wanna get rid of her. She's so annoying, if only I could kill her. And you know, the mirror of God's word has a very different message. The mirror of our truth, of our identity in Christ, of our salvation. James chapter one actually calls the word of God a mirror. And the word of God tells us what's right. The word of God says concerning your appearance, well, you know what? Beauty is fleeting, but a woman who fears the Lord, now that's the one who's going to receive praise. The word of God tells us that God values a quiet and gentle spirit. He values it so much that it's precious in his sight. The word of God tells us that we're not here to be approved of by man. In fact, Paul says to the Galatians that if he was trying to be approved of by man, he couldn't even be a follower of Christ. Concerning our finances, the Bible warns us continually to be free from the love of money so free of the love of money that we're generous, that we give, that we're people who are always giving. In fact, giving to God. Jesus talks about the fool in the gospels who stored up so much in his barns that he would have some great life ahead of him. Jesus said, you're a fool. Tonight your life is required of you and you have not been generous towards God. Concerning our relationships, We know the Bible teaches us that we're here to invest into others, to love God and to love other people, to serve other people, to put the interest of others above ourselves. We're here to love them and serve them, not to expect them to meet our needs. And then concerning our talents, our talents, our skills, our abilities. We know that God says we all work unto him. That he is not unjust as to not see the work that we do. In fact, even in a place like here, in a place like church, the one who serves that might feel like it's a lesser part, a lesser role, an unimportant role, might end up to be the very necessary thing that the church needs, that the body needs. We're to work and to serve unto the Lord. We have got to refuse to go back and to look into that mirror of our sinful desires. We've got to choose to turn from that mirror. We've got to choose to turn from the things that are there. And, you know, we all have something in our life that triggers us to go back there, that triggers us to look back in that mirror. And I would just say, you know, right now, search your heart. What is it that when you see this or you hear this or you engage in this, it triggers you to go back and look in that mirror? and you're caught up in that flurry of sinful desires again. Whatever that thing is, like Jesus said, if your right hand makes you sin, cut it off. If your right eye makes you sin, gouge it out. I remember one man saying, do radical amputation, because that's what it takes to deal with refusing these sinful desires. And as we keep our eyes on Jesus, God will work in us and through us to bring bring a greater good, even out of the pain, even out of the suffering, even out of the things that are difficult, that He is not only allowing, but orchestrating in our lives. There's a neat passage in Zechariah. It's found in actually Zechariah 13, 8 and 9, and it's talking to uh, God's people, the Israelites. Uh, It's a promise to the Israelites after the shepherd has been struck and the sheep are scattered and people have been, you know, wiped out. And God says in Zechariah 13, 8, in the whole land declares the Lord, two thirds shall be cut off and perish and one third shall be left alive. So he's got this remnant that's left alive. And in verse 9, he says, I will put this third into the fire. So this remnant of his people that's left alive, he's saying he's going to put them in the fire. The fire represents suffering. I will put them in the fire and refine them as one refines silver and test them as gold is tested. They will call upon my name and I will answer them. I will say they are my people and they will say the Lord is my God. This promise to Israel, to God's people, But we see this image often in the Old Testament of God being the refiner, the one who refines his people, like a silversmith or one who works with gold. And that's the way that God works with us because he loves us. It's said that of the silversmith that he would take his metal, his silver, his gold, whatever he was working with, and he would heat it hotter and hotter and hotter until it became molten, until it became liquid. And then when it became liquid, the lighter weight dross, the impurities, the contaminants would bubble up to the top. And then that silversmith would remove those contaminants from the top. And he would heat it up and the contaminants would bubble up again to the top. And then he would remove those contaminants from the top. The fires there, making the metal into liquid to bubble those contaminants up to the top. Our lives, the pain, the fire of suffering, bringing up anything that's not good that shouldn't be in there. And then the silversmith can remove it from our lives. And they say that the silversmith knew that the metal was finally pure when he looked into it and could see his own image. And that's what God wants from us. God's will is that when he looks at us, he would see Jesus. He expects to see himself in us when he looks into the mirror of our life. And we can only do that as we follow him and follow him closely. When we follow him, we can't say, Jesus, follow after me. I'm adding you to my life. I'm expecting you to follow me. That doesn't work. We have to say, Jesus, It's no longer my life. It's your life. And I will follow after you. Are you expecting Jesus to follow you? Because he's not going to. You got to follow him. He plainly declared that if we want to follow after him, we need to deny ourselves, take up our cross and follow him. And we're going to look at taking up our cross and following him even more in july and in august so for now let's pray god thank you so much for these ladies here who you have providentially you have in your sovereignty brought to this place this morning i pray god that you would help us all that you would help our hearts and help our minds god that you would help us to plan to live like jesus If anybody is here and has not yet surrendered their life to you, I pray, God, that this would be the day that they say that they surrender, that they give their life to you, that their faith, their confidence, their trust, their hopes, their dreams, it's all in Christ. And that they would turn from following their sinful desires and follow Jesus instead. I pray, God, that we would all expect suffering that we wouldn't be caught off guard or wouldn't be surprised as though some strange thing were happening to us because it's not. God, not only would we expect it, but that we would see the good that comes from it in our lives, in the lives of those we love. And God, please, by your Holy Spirit, please help us, Lord Jesus, to refuse those old sinful desires that want us to come back and glare into that mirror. Get that temporary elation if we can but end up trapped in a cycle that just never satisfies. God, help us to keep ourselves focused on you, focused on Jesus, focused on our new identity, focused on the truth of your word. Again, I thank you for these ladies, I thank you for our church, I thank you for this study, but most of all, I thank you for Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray, amen. You guys are dismissed to your groups.